Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and my guest today is Sharuk Hussein. Welcome to our show, Sharuk. It's such a pleasure to have you here today for this suitably spooky Halloween special. Thanks so much for having me, Lucy. Well, Sharuk, who was born and brought up in Pakistan, studied myth and folklore from around the world for many years. She's the editor of Women Who Wear the Breeches, a collection of de- delicious and dangerous fairy tales, Temptresses, the Virago Book of Evil Women, and most relevant to our chat today, the Virago Book of Witches. She also writes screenplays and has created the ITV drama series Beecham House. And I've heard on the grapevine that you're currently working on a horror movie script. Can I ask you about that? Or is it a little bit too early in the process? Sure. No, it's fine. I, I, was, I can't go into too many details. But um, as you know, my special area is folklore and, and therefore also nursery rhymes and oh. so on. And... Um, Years ago, I found out about um, this very dark myth, uh, or, or in fact, um, the truth maybe, um, that when bridges were built in medieval and pre-medieval times, a small child was immured in the foundations to appease the spirit of the river. Oh, my God. The river Lee, therefore, comes in the refrain of this, uh, in the old version of uh, London bridges falling down. So we're used to my fair lady at the end of the verse. Um, the original was dance all my lady Lee. And the lady Lee is the river. So I was very fascinated about that. And um, the story started to come into my mind. And this was quite a few years ago. And then recently, someone invited me to participate uh, in a horror lab. So I unearthed it. And also, interestingly, my daughter and her husband moved into uh, a house just near the regenerated um, Lee Valley. So it all sort of came together. So the story is based around a, a, a little boy who gets haunted by the spirit of the buried child which has managed to escape and how the River Lee um, is trying to get her sacrifice back. Um, so that, that's that's basically what the story is. Sounds amazing. I've never heard of this before. What a grim, 
what a grim slice of sort of, you know, history as well in there. I know, but what's so fascinating is that I found somewhere that just a few years ago, during building works at Tower Bridge, they found the bones of a child and they didn't do DNA them because apparently the Queen objected in case they were actually the children of Edward the Seventh. Oh, wait, the boys, in the, the boys in the tower? Yeah, the boys in the tower. And as this was going on, I was just reminding myself of this, sitting at my desk, and my husband said, oh, you were asking me about which king it was whose children were buried. And look, there's a news item here. Prince Charles has said to go ahead and DNA the bones. And I thought that was such a creepy, creepy coincidence. So let's see what happens. Let's see if they do turn out to be the boys in the tower. Wow. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't even... Um... I haven't even clocked that, but we've got to wait and find out, I guess. Yeah, pretty horrible, isn't it? Yeah, it's really kind of the idea of, I don't know, something about children's bones as well in particular is such a creepy the idea of unearthing children's yeah. bones, I think, gives everyone a sort of shiver down the spine. Oh, well, I can't wait yeah. to I can't wait to see the uh, the finished horror film when it's done and dusted and ready for audiences. Keep your fingers crossed; these things are so touch and go. That's true. That's true. Well, it sounds great to me. So, yeah, hopefully we will see it before too long. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Virago Book of Witches, which was sure. originally published back in 1993 and then was re-released a couple of years ago. And in the preface that you wrote for this new edition, you talk about a recent, uh, what you describe as a resurgence of interest in all things witchy, arguing that the witch is back because she's angry and because she knows her strength. And I think this will resonate with a lot of readers. But can you elaborate a little bit more on this? Like, why do you think now in particular is another great time for women in particular, I suppose, to be reading about witches and finding great role models perhaps they're in? I think one of the main things, Lucy, is that... um... The Me Too movement happened. Mm. That gave everybody absolutely phenomenal strength um, as as a mass, as a collective voice of women who were um, able to say other things as well. Um, uh, There was a lot of stuff generated about uh, abuse in the workplace, the glass ceiling for women, um, you know, a, a range of things. And then some uh, celebrities like Ariana Grande and one or two other uh, famous women, um, I think Bjork as well, uh, claimed to either be witches or be fascinated with witches. And then I noticed that a lot of photographers were using, um, you know, the models were appearing quite sort of um, uh, witchy and and, and uh, scary in, in photographs with these dark backgrounds and mangled vines and trees and um, lots of amphora in the background in um, indoor pictures and so on. And so there was something, you know, I think the witch was casting her spell and there was this massive movement. Um, well, I don't know if you can call it a movement, but massive response. And it happens every decade or so, you know, a lot of people start to talk about witches and Wicca and various other things. I, do, I still don't think, after all these years of studying it, that um, you can actually define precisely what a witch is. Well, I was so interested in that because there's something clearly... I mean, the, the stories in the book are from all over the world. They're clearly from sort of, you know, a lot of different time periods. They've been retold in various ways over the years. But the what I think comes out most strongly is that the figure of the witch is this sort of always very relevant 
figure, right? You point out that centuries have passed and the power that this figure will have over us hasn't really diminished in any sense. She's a continual challenge to authority. She's always a source of anarchy. And she sort of, not shapeshifts, maybe that's too strong of strong a word, but I had the sense that there's something in the way that she is always being redefined by different societies and different generations. And she sort of speaks to fears of the moment. Would you say that's the case, that people tend to scapegoat? I mean, women have always been scapegoated. Yeah, and that's absolutely spot on. And, and shape-shifting can be used for witches because, in, in fact, they do. But yes, uh, it's a thing. I feel that maybe in the ancient mind, the witch was a version of God. So we have God who dispenses divine justice and um, and there's the witch who also, for example, as the, as the figure sovereignty, the goddess of sovereignty, also dispenses justice. But when we say that a witch does something bad, we always define it as uh, revenge or punishment or, 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 you know, something negative. Whereas when God does it, when the justice comes from another divinity, then that is, you know, fairness and justice and um, appropriate punishment being meted out and so forth. And that's always been something that um, has interested me a lot because I haven't seen anyone actually pick that up and talk about it. Yeah. You see in the book, there are, there are eight different headings of the different kinds of witches. Yeah. So one of the ones was um, about, you know, or sev in several of the sections, there are also very playful stories. So the ones we're most familiar with is the witch with a tall hat and a broom and, and so forth. And um, they're great fun, but they're also scary, good for Halloween. Uh, sometimes they're, you know, poking fun at the witch, how ugly she is, uh, how she's tripped up by mere kids, as in the story Be Witch Be uh, versus Petey Pete and, um, and so forth. And then there's the other one of the witch who's so terrifying to men. Mm. And this is something that comes up all around the world. In Palestinian folklore, I read, and other parts of the uh, Middle East, uh, that witches chase little boys so that they can grab their willies and bite them off. Uh, <laughs> then there's the hideous... <laughs> and this, this seems to have been an absolute mortal terror uh, among men of having um, themselves emasculated, that somehow uh, being with a witch was going to completely uh, render them um, impotent. And there were these strange little quotations that I've got from um, the Malleus Maleficarum, which was uh, written by a couple of priests in the 15th century. It was um, this terrible book called Malleus Maleficarum, The Hammer of Witches, which was put together by two um, friars called Sprenger and Kramer. And they were basically the Bible, if you like, of uh, witch hunters. So it told you all the things that were so terrible about witches that you could define. And literally, if you look at them now, they're actually laughable. I'm going to read you out one. The witches themselves have often been seen lying on their backs in the fields or in the woods, naked up to the very navel, and it has been apparent from the dispositions of their limbs and members which pertain to the venereal act and orgasm, as also from the agitation of their thighs, that all, invisibly to the bystander, they've been copulating with the devil. <laughs> <laughs> and then the pleasures should naturally be greater when like disports with like. 
Yet that cunning enemy can so bring together the active and positive elements, not indeed naturally, but in such qualities of warmth and temperament that he seems to excite no less degree of concupiscence. Now, they're absolutely terrified <laughs> the devil is going to take away all their virility and you know, all, all the witches are going to swallow up all their virility. And why? Do you think it might be something to do with the fact that although men play a part in impregnating women, that they can't actually physically impregnate them, you know, get be impregnated themselves and therefore the power all resides with these women who um, then have to insist that, have to agree that that a man has the right to give the child his name and inheritance can only go through a man. And, you know, all of these things that we don't often really think about, but it, it is quite interesting that they should always want to dominate and put these women down because they've spoken out. Uh, because, yes, yes. you know, they want to be independent. I mean, Lilith, for example, you know the story of Lilith. She mm. was the first wife of Adam. Yes. And she didn't want to lie beneath him so she objected, and she found out what they call the ineffable name of God, and she flew off to him and she said, I'm going to name you if you don't give me my way. And as a result, she was cast out of um, Eden um, because, obviously, being on top shows domination. And so then she was vilified through the centuries in the Bible. She was creating demons. She was mating with demons. She was doing all sorts in the Midrash and other Jewish literatures. But I came across these wonderful stories about how Lilith actually loves children. And you'll often find that in the middle of the night, she's lurking around the room for a child who's restless and playing with that child, ruffling its hair to put it to sleep. And... Um, you can tell that she's been there or comes regularly when there's a child who has a little flick at the base of the nape, a baby who has oh, a flick yeah. that doesn't kind of really stay down. Now, yeah. You see that quite often. So I, I was very delighted about the fact that my daughter had that little flick at the back of her, at the nape of her neck, and um, is a very, very successful journalist now. And her little daughter, my youngest granddaughter, who's only just over a year old, has the same flick and sleeps beautifully at night and is the most cheerful child I've ever seen. So, you know, welcome, Lilith, if you're going to do that, do that for my family and other families. Why not? <laughs> All thanks to Lilith. That's a great way of looking at it and a, and a fascinating side of the story that I've never heard as well to her. So thank you very much. Um, and I definitely would encourage any listeners, if they haven't picked up Embrago Before Witches already, get hold of a copy. It's just full of really fascinating stories. Some of which you might have heard before, others will be completely new to you. And often you'll learn things that you didn't know. You'll be entertained. You know, Some of them are very funny. Some of them are really quite moving. Others are quite sexy. Like There's something for everyone in there, to put it that way. <laughs> Um, let's move on to our main questions now, Inshallah, if we can. And I think you're going to tell me about a book on your bedside table that's uh, nicely spooky or got some sort of spooky connection to Halloween, aren't you? Yes, not necessarily to Halloween, but definitely to ghosts. Perfect. Which is kind of part of Halloween. So that is um, the story of uh, the book is called uh, Dame Jane of Pheasancy. 
And I'll start off with my own experience of it. So we used to go quite often to Pevensey Castle, to the little cafe there, and then do a walk around. It's pretty dilapidated. It's a ruin, basically. But it used to be on the shores of uh, the sea. Uh, the sea withdrew dramatically. So, of course, now there's Pevensey and various other parts of East Sussex that are land and built on and so on. So I was there once, and I was standing by... I actually managed to... Uh, make myself because my granddaughter insisted on it climb up to the ramparts and uh, to the the parapet and we we were looking over to assess you know how far the sea must have been and I heard this whisper in my ear I cannot work out what the accent was it sounded almost Germanic sort of I suppose Canterbury Tales type of accent and the whisper simply said I was not the writer of that letter or words to that extent. And I didn't know anything about any letter or anything, but obviously it really, really uh, want, you know, made me want to find out more. So I came across two Joans. One was Joan of Navarre and one is Lady Joan Pelham, both connected with Pelham, uh, John Pelham, who was the constable and chief sheriff of Surrey and Sussex, and the Lord High Treasurer. And the first one is about Joan of Navarre, who was the wife of, um, I don't know how I'm pronouncing it, King Henry IV. Right. And uh, her relationship with the children was very good, especially with Prince Hal, who was the future Henry V. Uh, but at some point in some war, he um, imprisoned her son, from a previous marriage, and uh, they fell out. And as a result, there was a Friar Randolph around at the time, who was a favourite, and he accused her of trying to poison Hal by witchcraft. That was 1394. So her fortune was uh, completely confiscated, and she was um, sent off to Pevensey Castle, where she was imprisoned for pretty much the rest of her life. But uh, on his deathbed, Henry recanted and pardoned her, so she was let out. Now, the other one was Lady Joan Pelham, oh. 70 years earlier, who was the wife of a Sir John Pelham, Pelham who also, I mean, he may, may have been the same guy, or maybe not. Anyway, Pelham supported Henry Bolingbroke and was fighting against Richard to help um, Henry become Henry IV. Uh, and that was, I think, around 1399. Anyway... Pelham was away campaigning with Henry when Pevensey Castle was attacked by Richard II's forces. The sea was not more than maybe a hundred less, uh, some metres away from, from the castle, and she was besieged on all sides. So a letter exists in which Lady Joan actually asked her husband to come back because she couldn't defend the place single-handedly, and she said, well, the letter said, I am laid here in a manner of siege that I may not out nor no victuals get to me. And so she was really begging him to come back because she was she was besieged on all sides. She couldn't feed her staff. I mean, there were literally scores of them on the grounds and, and the whole place was totally surrounded. So um, I, you know, was obviously fascinated and started chasing up as much as I could about her. But one day I was in Pevensey Castle and um, I went into the souvenir shop because I'd taken a friend who wanted to have a look. And I asked the, 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 the volunteer whether he knew anything about this letter. And um, 
he was quite surprised. Uh, you know, he seemed quite spooked, actually. He said a local historian has actually been researching this letter for quite a while. And he's come up with the uh, conclusion that there is absolutely no way Joan Pelham would have written that letter because the language of the letter, you know, linguistically and the way it the, the, the script and so on was completely different from anything that would have happened in her time. Wow. <laughs> that was very eerie. People say even now that they see uh, a, a grey lady wandering around and there's no real conclusion as to whether uh, which Joan she is. So she wanders around the battlements and they say that um, uh, that Joan um, Pelham had actually uh, taken to spending a lot of time up there watching to see if her husband was coming back to protect her with an army to, to, to you know, fend off these Richard II battalions. And um, so I don't know, the, the, the jury is out, I don't know which one it is, but I, th I think because of my experience, that it is Joan Pelham. And sometimes I get this urge to kind of go on a real search and do ancestry things and so on, and I do them, but it's all very um, brief and there's not much information at all about it, and some of it is quite confused as well. So I guess it's always going to be a mystery, but people are still claiming to see this um, spirit of Joan, the Grey Lady, whether she's the French one or whether she's the, the English one. How fascinating. And so is the book a story of her life or the, the castle? How does it tie into it? Well, the book uh, is the story of the castle and of Joan. Okay. Uh, but, uh, but I followed it up and managed to track it down because people kept talking. About, I went to a lecture in which the uh, speaker kept referring to it as the book and saying that it's you know, impossible to find it and oh. there are no copies of it. In fact, it's, an, uh, it, it's really more about war and, and Joan travelling to war with her father and so on. Uh, and I think that is Joan Pelham. There's nothing about the ghost in it or, uh, yeah, but, but so that was the connection. And that book has sat by my bedside for about, oh, many years uh, on a pile uh, because I don't dare to, <laughs> to let it out of my sight or lose it uh, in case I don't find it again. <laughs> uh, and when I picked it up to dust it the other day, I thought to myself, this would be a good book to talk about because it's so relevant and so funny that I'm actually looking at it now after all these years and it's sort of striking a chord. Synchronicity, Jung used to call it. <laughs> exactly. And a wonderfully spooky story as well for us to take away from the, from the episode. Um, next up then, Char, well, can you tell me about, I think you're going to speak about some recent TV that you've been enjoying, is that right? Yes. So that's, that's The Split. And I was uh, really fascinated by The Split because it's, been, it's had three seasons. Generically speaking, it's, it's about the law and, and law cases, but it's very different because it's actually solicitors rather than lawyers. So you see them more in their offices um, rather than in um, at court. So we hear about the cases. But the fascinating thing is that this is about a family of women, the Defoe family, uh, and her three daughters, uh, Ruth and her three daughters. Uh, and the lead character is Hannah, played by Nicola um, uh, Walker. Nicola Walker. And um, so two of the daughters are lawyers. And eventually, all three women end up at the same law firm, uh, because, yeah, for various reasons. And so 
it's this really close family with all their tensions and things which are being worked through at work because sometimes they have they're representing opposing people mm. and at home in in personal relationships and um very interestingly abby morgan said that the idea came to her when she was in her late 40s she'd been married for 20 years and she happened to get into a conversation with a woman about family law who was a divorce lawyer and she herself was a child of divorce uh, i think her, fa- her family split up when she was about 11 so she um she 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 sort of put a lot of that into it so we get these amazing scenes of tension with the daughters the, the uh, disappearance of the father without any word ever after and the youngest girl was two and as she was growing up there was no um she couldn't remember her her father or anything else and sort of always gets upset when the others remember more but you know it's this incredibly f- uh, close family and there's a scene in it where all the girls get get tipsy and they start looking through a cupboard filled with old childhood treasures and they're arguing about whose memories are right and whose are wrong and they get cross and they sulk and then they laugh again and it's it's this amazing sort of um cauldron in which women of all kinds from all backgrounds are found so all the cases across three split uh, three seasons oh. um are about women mostly middle-aged women who are being dumped by their oligarch or you know <laughs> celebrity husbands um in order to to cut loose and it's funny and it's witty and and, and it's um just so interesting and and I'm, I could Abby Morgan she said we can be self-conscious about writing about the middle classes there's also an element of schadenfreude about it in that they're not as happy as they look with some of the cases we feature they may have multi-million pound lifestyles and properties all over the world but when it comes to issues of the heart we're universally connected we're the same so you know the main characters go through their own relationships and they're working they're divorce lawyers so they're working with other divorces and absolutely the entire spectrum of female problems from you know um menopause to uh, adulterous husbands to their own adultery to being you know put down or raised up or trying to fight for themselves and so on it's all there and it it was just absolutely fascinating uh, and even men love it i mean it's all predominantly women i mean the men are beautifully painted in it as well mm. but um that was the that was the story of the split and i i thought about one or two others but really this was the one i wanted to talk about because it's really stayed with me and so often in life especially when i'm working with a a couple or something so much of that that series comes back to me about you know uh the way women have to make choices they look at their long relationships and they're wondering it's all good but was it the right thing could it have been this way mm. would it have been different or it's perfect or it's not perfect or you know all those things that even in a close marriage and an intimate marriage can um um you know raise their head uh as a query or a, a sort of uh, rambling thought or 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 something more serious yes well i was going to ask as your work as a psychotherapist surely uh well i had retired just before the pandemic but uh, i got a lot of requests from 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 past patients from way back in you know 
20 years ago whose children had anxiety issues, but also a couple of people whose marriages were falling apart in the pandemic. So yes, I, I, I sort of half practice now, part, part practice. Yes, I was wondering in particular when you're watching something like a show like this that has, um, that sort of, you know, lays bare these family dynamics and does it as you're arguing in such a kind of believable and kind of complex, interesting way. Does it make you quite sort of short tempered with shows that don't do that properly? You know, yes, I shout at the television. (laughs) It does, but there's another part of me which tries to just be stay within the frame and of course within the frame things can annoy you but Mm. because I I really have to try and um, keep a distance between writing scripts seeing patients and watching the television so I don't want to lose my enjoyment of watching television because I'm always working on where the turning points are and where a certain bit could have you know worked better um and you learn, of course, from it, but you don't get the full enjoyment because you're you're working, really. What does annoy me is gross inaccuracy. Yes, that does. That does annoy me. Um, uh, but then <laughs> human beings are frail. And, you know, I mean, we, we, we are all inconsistent at different times. And, you know, if someone may do something that you think is entirely inconsistent, I'm sure we know people and have done it ourselves as well, who seem to be quite clearly one way and then suddenly something uh, like an aberration comes up and you think what I can't believe that that's so true isn't it that's so true all the strange things you see in tv shows you've seen what you've seen plenty worse and plenty but weirder at the moment though I'm shouting more at politicians than anyone else and a little bit at the press as well on television (laughs) aren't we all aren't we all these days our shall's be back in just a moment Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lisa Scholes and I'm talking to Sharuk Hussain about, uh, I suppose, the joys of shouting at the television, um, though we are all shouting at politicians more than TV shows at the moment, I think. Um, Next up, Shah, on the shelf, can you tell me about a book that has made you think about feminism in a new way? This is always a tricky question to kind of nail it down to one or something by a particular author but you've chosen a a wonderful option for us today I think. I struggle with it. The thing is that I grew up with women who were incredibly incredibly proactive in a social (laughs) uh, socio-political if you like way and so when the word feminism came to me when I was sort of in my very early teens I really thought more about the fact that these women were actually having to form into organised groups and writing about it and going into, um, you know, parliament and, and political groups and so on in order to get into parliament. 
which was quite surprising to me because my father's aunt had been in, was in the first constituent assembly when Pakistan was formed in 1947. My aunt was later a politician wow. and I opened my eyes to my mother and her um, milieu, if you like, women from um, well-placed backgrounds creating an infrastructure, a social infrastructure for the entire country while the older, while the men were doing the, the politics and the admin. So to me, women going out there and, and making their mark and being independent and trying to do things for different people, often the, the, the background I'm talking about was of women from educated uh, families, very well off, and uh, but still brought up in a very sheltered sort of way. So it's, I often wondered where this kind of power burst forth. And Atiyah Hussain, uh, who I'm talking about, um, her books were reissued by, um, uh, by Virago a while ago, so she had a third coming, as it was. They've also just re- even more recently been reissued again last year by Virago, so she's had another coming since then. This is why it's a perfect answer for this podcast. Oh, brilliant. On the shelf has been sunlight on a broken column in various editions. And this one is along with Phoenix Fled. Um, now, Atia came from a very, she was highborn. Uh, the family owned vast quantities of land. So I suppose we would call it aristocracy, really. And uh, they were a progressive family, but obviously they had their rules and regulations about women. But Atia actually managed to go to university. She was very fascinated by a group of um, uh, writers and poets in um, the 20s who started a movement called the Progressive Writers Association, which was basically about uh, getting independence for India. And um, Atiya obviously was, was pro that, but she never had any personal angst against any group or any society and was not really keen on Pakistan or India being split up. Nobody is happy about their country being split up. So that was the case. But she wrote articles for the Indian statesman. She wrote various learned pieces on politics. And then her stories are utterly fascinating because she talks primarily about working class women. And the stories are heartbreaking. They're stories about women who work in a household. They're pretty much holding the household up with their chores. They're domestic workers. Um, she doesn't spare her own class for being uh, mean in their payments to women uh, who are working for them. Um, she talks about how those women then blame each other as well and all the sort of fights and gossip and so on that goes in there. But heartbreakingly, one of the things she come, talks about is um, a woman, uh, a story called The Loss. And there's this woman who's worked for her for 30 years, first as her uh, wet nurse, and then later on just as a member of the house, really. And she comes in in the middle of the night saying that there's a steel box that has disappeared from under her bed. And this lady says, well, what's in the steel box? Turns out all the money she'd saved her entire life to give her son a decent marriage has been stolen. Now, behind the story is this woman's own story, which really equates to so much of what, which really equates to such a lot of what still goes on in India with women whose husbands have died early or whose children die or who have repeated miscarriages 
they're called accursed. They're thrown out of the house. In this case, this woman's husband died just before her son was born, and she was thrown out of the house with this baby, wandered around everywhere, finally got this job, and there she was, um, steady. And it really broke my heart to read it, because I just looked it up and reread it before uh, coming on this podcast. Uh, And it reminded me of another story. You know, I was very into witches, even when I was little. So I was always grabbing people and trying to find out stories about witches and does a witch live in this street here? And I heard there's one round the corner there and so on. Um, and this woman arrived at the, and sat on the steps of the veranda. She was, um, her face was half covered as it often is in India. I'm talking about 40 or 50 years ago. And I was, uh, you know, fascinated by her. And because she had her face covered and I saw this sort of slightly hooky nose poking out, I assumed, oh, my God, she's a witch. And she was weeping (laughs) and thrashing her chest and kept saying, I'll translate literally, it's quite dramatic. She said, I, the witch, have been cast out of my village, stones thrown at me, chased by dogs. And I wander around with nowhere to go. And my heart was literally about to pop out through my mouth and my nose and everywhere else. Because I thought, oh, my God, she's actually a witch. And then to my amazement, my great aunt said to, called one of the um, women who worked there and said, take her to the kitchen and give her a good meal and back up some food for her to take. And I thought, now, this aunt was actually quite tough, you know, not particularly compassionate. So I looked at her and I said, are you feeding her because she'll curse us or kill someone if she uh, doesn't get treated nicely? And she looked a bit bewildered. She said, what are you talking about? I said, she just said she was a witch. And she said, oh, no, no, dear. These women are called witches because of these deaths occurring. They're not actually witches at all. So she's just taken it on herself. And that has really stayed with me. And then I see it happening still sometimes. I hear from, I haven't been to India for a long, long time, but I hear about these stories. And I just think that life hasn't changed all that much. There is also stories about very young women who come to work either with their mothers-in-law or because they're lost and they're, they often seem to be very confused and disoriented and just, just latch on to every touch or look of sympathy or word of sympathy from the employer. And in one case, when one was being sent back to her mother-in-law, she um, ripped out the photograph, family portrait of uh, the, the, the woman who was kind to her and the husband and their baby because presumably she wanted it to be with her. And instead of feeling angry that she's ripped the picture out of the frame, you kind of feel so sad for her. And, you know, uh, that that still happens. That kind of thing still happens. So I thought that it would be a very appropriate one. And also, at the time, Atia was um, someone I knew when I was quite young, and I thought that that remark she made to young people who wanted to write, which she said to me as well, um, about, you know, uh, writing being like a muscle and 
uh, and you have to keep exercising it because otherwise your heartbeat stops and you you, you know you become void. So in some version, she said that I noticed a Camilla, who's her great niece um, and a good deal younger than I am, um, in her introduction. Uh, but she also said to me, and she was very very encouraging uh, about my writing. She sent me to her son's. Um, her son was Varis Hussain, who's a film director. Um, you know, to watch um, watch shooting and so on, which was quite exciting for me. Um, and so she was someone who stands out very much in my mind as a very uh, adventurous uh, woman who wasn't that nicely treated by her uh, in-laws. I mean, they weren't nasty. They were all quite sophisticated people, but she was, you know, haha. You know, she, she thinks she can be in a Shakespearean play and look at her you know, writing, you know, working at the radio station in England and, and so forth. But, um, yeah, she's been a, she's been a real um, light for a lot of us young writers. Can I ask, I'm interested, did you read her work before you met her or did you meet her first and then read her work? Do you remember? I met her when I must have been um, oh, about 12 or 13 when she was in Pakistan. Oh, wow. So they're very young when you first realised and then you discovered her work later when you were a bit older? Yeah, much later. Actually, I, I knew about the work and I heard my mother speaking about it. And my brother was very, um, he's written quite a lot about her as well. <clears throat> he's a writer too, very, very close to her before she died. And um, uh, then I met her again in England and she was just so, I mean, she was so joyful about the fact that I was writing and I'd started doing journalism and um, just, and so, like my family, um, across cultures, I remember my mother telling me when we were very young, uh, I said, oh, God, Mom, I don't know what to say because, you know, I feel half Indian and half Pakistani and half, you know, uh, you know, English speaking. And, and so she said, well, darling, you're just a citizen of the world. That's all you have to think of. And it was true. I mean, our libraries were full of books in English, Persian, Arabic, Urdu, uh, Hindi, as, as were my grandfather's. Um, and we spoke all of the language. Well, I didn't speak Arabic or Persian, but I understood Persian. And, um, and it was not... Um, I've never really had this problem about, where am I British or am I Asian? I am just who I am. You know, I'm made of many parts and that's all there is to it, really. I can't identify myself with one group or another group. And if a group is too cliquish, I can't find my way anywhere near it. And that was something that Atiyah also espoused. I love that idea that she sort of shone a bit of a light for you as well, showed you maybe how to, how to exist in this world as a writer and as a, you know, with a, with a complex identity that meant a lot to you but maybe didn't make sense to other people in the same way. Yes, uh, and it was quite interesting because when I was, uh, first started writing professionally, there was always this query, you know, will it be convincing that you have uh, English books in your library? Or, well, it sounds, I mean, can you, can you just sort of clarify why? Um, is it okay for you to, some people would say to me, um, is it okay for you to write in the voice of an English woman? or a, a European woman, and vice versa, of course, they said it to a, uh, to English women, as, yeah. English writers as well, you know, do you have the right to, yeah. um, and, and I think that's all nonsense. I mean, I, I don't, I don't 
criticize or judge anyone for thinking that, but it's, to me, it, it makes no sense. And that came partly from Atia and partly from my mother. Well, that brings us very neatly to the final question I'm going to ask you today, Shah. I asked you to tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you admire, and you've picked someone very special for this question. Well, that has to be my mum, my mother. She also came, she actually came from a royal family. Uh, her father was head of a principality, which he gave up in order to educate his daughters wow. and came to live in a town. They were brought up very strictly um, uh, in the sense that they were very well-read and well-informed and um, and so forth. But, you know, there was always this decorum, if you like, about behaving a certain way, speaking okay. a certain way, uh, not going out without um, a, 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 a chaperone and so forth. And then she got married at 23, um, a year after um, partition happened and Pakistan was born. My father lived on the uh, Pakistan side. So she came and she was instantly plunged into this whirlpool of work with a few other women, trying to resettle refugees, looking after the women, organizing, um, uh, you know, food packages, mm. treatment, various other things. So I, I grew up with that. I grew up with my mother doing that. And then afterwards, when things were settled, they progressed to uh, various other charity organizations like, um, uh, well, the big one was called All Pakistan Women's Association. Okay. It still exists. And they set up organizations like, uh, you know, Institutes for the Blind and various other things. The organization that was closest to my mother's heart and also to mine was one called the Patients Welfare Project. And if a man, for some reason, I'm talking about working class men, uh, was um, um, very ill for some reason or had an accident and had to be in hospital for a long time, the wives had no wherewithal. So uh, my mother was hugely involved in founding, founding this uh, society where the wives of such men were called in to get training. So they were trained in sewing, basket weaving, cooking, um, oh. and, uh, you know, pottery, um, painting, various things so that they could actually earn a living. And while they were doing it there, uh, they would get paid. Um, so there was some, um, there was some uh, you know, means of their um, moving forward and, and being able to look after themselves without it feeling like charity. So a lot of those women were very successful. Mum was also quite. Um, she was. Quite, <laughs> she was quite um, <laughs> off the wall sometimes. So she got it in her. <laughs> she got it in her head that uh, you know prostitutes were very bra badly treated, and she didn't see why. I mean, look yeah. looked down upon rather than badly treated, and she didn't see any reason why their children should have to inherit that. So she decided she was going to go and rehabilitate the children of the prostitutes from the red light areas, educate them, and um, you know organize their marriages because marriages were arranged in those days, and everything would be you know there would be a whole generation that would grow up without the stigma. And I mean, you can imagine the furore that that caused, including from the <laughs> prostitutes themselves. They said, "You may get, <laughs> you may get these women married." Or, or men, but it's not going to work because they're always going to have it thrown at them. You know, people find out about this. So Mama decided to 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 sort of 
let that go. Um, but there was another thing she was very involved in, which was um, uh, reform, uh, reforming yes. family laws. So the rights of women were not that brilliant. For example, in Islam, you could say three times, a husband could say three times to his wife, I divorce you. And a, a decree Nisai um, wow. was in place. There were four months mm -hmm. for arbitration and that was that. And various other things like, you know, some women were forced to wear the veil. When I was growing up, very few people wore the veil and those who did, we very rudely referred to as the shuttlecocks because they had these um, black sort of scarves over their heads with the netting over the eyes and then these long flowing gowns below. And um, uh, I mean, it was, a, it was a friendly thing. It was not vicious. But anyway, uh, <laughs> Anyway, so, so she actually um, ended up uh, giving a talk in Parliament about uh, the re uh, reforming of family laws, and they included divorce and various other rights. Praying in public, for example, praying at the mosque, you could only women could only pray at home. I mean, yeah, the the, the um, you oh. know the, the regulatory prayers and so on. And um, there were, of course, various clerics there, including one really well known one who heard my mother waxing lyrical and, you know, she was incredibly eloquent and passionate. I don't know where all that came from or when, because that was not the way she was brought up. And um, making very good points and, you know, people listening with great interest. Wow. Thank you so much, Shah, for sharing those memories with us and for all your great recommendations. Um, we've loved having you on the podcast. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. Our Shelves is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Sharuk Hussain. Tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. Mm -hmm.